Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Susanna Hellman, Curatorial Manager in the National Library of Australia's Exhibitions Branch. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. I'm really delighted that so many of you have joined us today for a conversation about Anne-Louise Willoughby's new book, Nora Heysen, A Portrait. Anne-Louise has worked as a journalist in a career that has spanned 30 years in Western Australia, first training as a newspaper cadet in the 1970s before moving to magazine publishing within, with Australian Consolidated Press. As a freelance journalist, she was a feature writer for Australian newspapers and contributing WA editor to Bell magazine. Anne-Louise has worked as a lecturer and tutor in creative writing at the University of Western Australia, with a particular interest in memoir and biography. In this recently published biography, Anne-Louise celebrates Nora Heysen, a driven, optimistic and resilient Australian painter. Heysen was the first woman to win the Archibald Prize and Australia's first female painter to be appointed an official war artist. Her post-war portraiture and still-life painting sustained a long career. In 1989, aged 78, after years of artistic obscurity, she re-emerged on the Australian art scene and the nation's major art institutions restored her position as a significant Australian artist. Many of you may remember the exhibition about Nora Heysen, curated by Lou Klepak, held here at the library between October 2000 and January 2001. You may also have called up boxes from the papers of Nora Heysen or her father, Sir Hans Heysen, in our reading rooms. This evening, Anne-Louise will speak briefly about her book before being joined on stage by Nat Williams, the National Library of Australia's Treasures Curator, to discuss the life and work of Nora Heysen further. The Treasures Curatorship has been assisted by the Australian Government through the Department of Communication and the Arts' Catalyst, Australian Arts and Culture Fund. Please join me now in welcoming Anne-Louise Willoughby to the stage. Thank you very much, and it's really lovely to be here. Thank you for coming out on a chilly Canberra evening. Coming from Perth, your uh, temperatures can be a little disturbing for <laughs> me, but here we are in this beautiful arena. I'm very happy to be back at our National Library. During the research for my book, I made numerous trips to Canberra from Perth, and without the staff and the extraordinary resources here at the NLA, this book would simply not exist. The Special Collections Reading Room became my home away from home, and the staff, the librarians, could not have been more helpful. Every one of my queries or requests was met with a professional and engaged assistance. And after a while, on repeat visits, it was nice to be greeted with, good to see you back. To be here tonight with the finished product was an imagined moment for four years, and it feels very good. I'm grateful to all of the staff that keep the collections at the NLA in the best of order and readily accessible. Working in the Heysen archive meant dealing with multiple boxes that needed to be called for, often from off-site, and when I arrived, they were always ready in the special reading room, waiting for me. Combing through hundreds and hundreds of documents can be tedious and tiring, but there are many eureka moments, and I may have disturbed the peace once or twice uh, with an unrestrained exclamation of joy, but I was always met with a knowing smile from behind the desk, and I think I'm not the first researcher to uh, be acknowledged in that kind way. This is the first biography of Nora Heysen, and I have been grateful for the Heysen family support over the last four years as I've researched and written this book. In 1967, when I was nine, I went on a school excursion to the Museum of Western Australia 
We didn't have an art gallery then. And I got lost, I got separated from my class when I was standing on the big Jarrah staircase on the first level and I looked up and there was Hans Heysen's driving into the light. And at that age of nine, I understood what art can do for us, how it can transform and transport us into a different place. But it was not until the 1990s that I saw a work by Nora Heysen and I was puzzled. The work had strong characteristics of a Hans Heysen, but I knew it wasn't his. When I learned it was by his daughter, I was embarrassed that I didn't know her. I hadn't heard of Nora. After all, she was the first woman to win the Archibald Prize and she was Australia's first female war artist. But I discovered I wasn't alone. In art circles, Nora was known, but in the wider conversation, she was out of view. This is my contribution to the ongoing conversation about women in art and their restitution to their rightful place. A conversation that started with the new wave of feminism in the 1970s and which has progressed particularly in the last 20 years in a most meaningful way across the major institutions in this country. There are now programs across many institutions globally aimed at recognising women artists. Recent initiatives include the National Gallery here with the Know My Name campaign and the Sheila Foundation, named for Sheila Crothers of the Crothers Collection of Australian Women's Art, with its mission statement that it is a national foundation painting Australian women back into our history and creating a strong future for contemporary women artists. I think Nora would approve. Nora was born in 1911 and died in 2003 at the age of 92. There are distinct chapters in Nora's life, from her childhood at the Cedars in the Adelaide Hills to her final days in Sydney. Throughout all these stages, there was one prevailing element. Nora lived her life propelled by an all-consuming drive to draw or paint. And of this compulsion, she said, this is my earliest memory. It will be my last memory, I think that I must put something on paper. Of the eight Heisen children, it was Nora who showed early signs of natural artistic talent and her father was quick to foster it. The teenage Nora, working alongside her father in his studio, was seen by her mother as a distraction for Hans and Sally arranged for Nora to have her own space to work. Nora recounts that visitors to her father's studio would marvel at one of Hans's latest works, not realising they were boldly and loudly praising the teenage protégé and not the master. She said, I don't think father felt so much about it, but mother did. She arranged for me to work outside of father's studio. Sally Heisen was the woman behind the family enterprise that was the Cedars. She was fierce in her protection and promotion of her husband. Everything was managed around providing Heisen with the best work environment. Carefully staged social events were frequent at the Heysen home. Socially illustrious visitors from a broad spectrum of the international and Australian community were welcomed to an open house on Sundays involving a plentiful supply of German brown cakes and coffee. Sunday afternoon at the Heysen's was quite the event. As much genuine hospitality as commercial strategy, this performance brought in money through commissions and sales. Nora described her mother as skilled and professional hostess and the entertainment, she says, of the guests was left entirely to her. Nora said, this sells pictures, money for living. With eight children, money was involved and very necessary. Mother knew the right people. She was such an asset to him. She would have been a writer or a diplomat. She was not a warm mother. Her greatest weapon was her tongue. She could lay you on the floor with her tongue. Sally's decision to move Nora into her own studio might have been to protect Hans, but it was beneficial for Nora that her aspirations were taken seriously at a young age. In Eggs, 1927, when she was only 16, Nora demonstrates her understanding of composition and her affiliation with the everyday objects of domestic life at the Cedars. But her still lives were often at risk. The purloined objects she was painting could be a requisition for the making of afternoon tea. She faced similar disruptions later in her own home, the chalet at the Hunters Hill in Sydney, when well-meaning assistance with tidying up meant 
a still life she had set up with, was inadvertently demolished or cooked. And friends quickly learned to leave any arrangement remotely resembling a tableau well alone. During my research, it quickly became clear that Nora was aligned with her father. Her mother supported her aspirations to be an artist, but Sally's conservative views would prove to be a point of conflict between her daughters who were growing up in a period of enormous social change. There were responses to events by Sally that would have lasting ramifications, the loss of a daughter's life and the decisions that Nora would make moving forward as a result of a loved sister. As a biographer, it is the tracing and understanding of significant events that informs your subject's decision-making processes. Her mother's decisions based on social convention and the need to avoid scandal in order to protect the enterprise of the Cedars, I believe, left Nora with a belief that people should not be judged. Nora was a strong-willed young woman, quiet but determined. Her approach, it appeared, was to move with stealth and commitment without making a lot of noise. By 14, Nora was clear she wanted to leave school and go to art school. Her parents were not sure about this idea and set up what they thought was a major obstacle. Nora was not a great student because she didn't like school. Her parents said if she passed the intermediate exams, they would agree to her request, never believing that she would pass. They didn't have much faith, said Nora, in my scholastic ability. So they didn't think I had a hope of getting the intermediate, but they didn't really know me because I studied like mad. I sat up all night and studied, and I did get through. She made it to the North Adelaide School of Fine Arts under Frederick Wilmot, beg your pardon, Millwood Gray. She described the stultifying effects of drawing from plaster casts for three years at the School of Fine Arts, saying they were enough to kill an artist stone dead. I survived it because I was very persistent and I knew what I wanted. I think that might sum Nora up, actually. She said Millwood Gray was a knowledgeable and conscientious academic painter, reliable and safe. Fresh from England, very tight, he wasn't an inspiration. You learned the solid way. In those first few years before she graduated to live classes, her time working with her father provided the inspiration. And Lou Klepak, who in 1989 was responsible for bringing Nora back into view, noted that she was able to compensate for the dull and unimaginative routine of the school by drawing with her father. Nora supported this observation, saying that she benefited returning daily from school to an artistic house. She said, we lived art, talked art, drank art, and all the visitors were artists. So that was my diet when I was young. On the weekends, I could do what I liked, paint in my father's studio, or go out and paint gum trees like father. That was my saving. Art school could be rather killingly, deadly. There is no doubt of the benefit Nora enjoyed working alongside her father, but there were also challenging times. Having meticulously set up a still life of onions to work on in her spare time, she returned to it to start after her week at art school had ended. She was irritated to see that her father had set up his easel and had already painted them. Hans Heisen was also prone to touches of insensitivity in his enthusiasm to guide his daughter. Nora was generous in her memory of her father, despite finding charcoal corrections covering a freshly finished work. She said, he genuinely tried not to influence me, so I could try to develop my own style. Sometimes he couldn't resist, of course. I remember one day I left a painting of a basket of eggs in the studio, which I thought was pretty good. But when I came back, I found father had drawn squares all over it, showing where my draftsmanship was wrong. I was furious. Of course, he was right, but it took me a long time to see it. When she was 22, Nora held a highly successful solo exhibition, raising sufficient funds to cover three years of art school in London. Nora had never been away from home and her family, so to make her way in London came as quite a shock for the retiring country girl. Her solution was to invite her closest friend, Everton Stokes, a sculpture student, to come from Adelaide to London and share her flat. 
and this disturbed her parents. They were concerned by rumours of Evie's ambivalent sexuality and they believed that Nora's reputation would be harmed. Nora did not believe the rumours and despite her love and respect for her parents, this resulted in perhaps the first openly defined act by Nora when she refused to succumb to parental pressure and she continued her friendship with Everton, quietly persisting and hoping for acceptance. It would be a lifetime friendship. London Breakfast, painted in 1934, shows her friend Evie at their table. And Mary Eagle bought the work from Nora for the National Gallery in 1996. And she commented, Nora Hyson was at her best in the 1930s when she produced a group of remarkable portraits. The intimate, reflective London Breakfast, though less immediately gripping than the single portraits, is a fine painting in its own right and will achieve a ready recognition from the public. And I think today that has been proven right. Eagle suggested that this friendship and the security it provided Nora was central to the equilibrium she was able to find and that it showed in her work. She had painted Evie in a Jaeger dressing gown, a luxury brand item that was a special gift to her from her parents. And she wrote to her parents on receiving the gift, this is a simply lovely present you've given me. I was so excited when it came, it's a beauty. The most gorgeous dressing gown I've ever seen, so soft and warm, good for Canberra. It is the colour I love best, a lightish soft blue grey with a buff coloured lining. Did you tell Mr McGregor exactly what I wanted? I wonder if it irked them when Nora wrote to her parents saying she was painting Evie wearing the gown. She might have been a little provocative in her choice of costume for her sitter in at least two of works that are known, including London Breakfast and its partner picture, Interior 1935, which is now held here at the NLA. There is a touch of willfulness in her choice, whether conscious or not, and Mary Eagle describes the painting further. The serenity amounting to exaltation of this and other London images was new in Nora's art and probably owed more to personal circumstances than to the criticism of Central School art instructor Bernard Meninsky, who told Nora her drawings lacked any emotional quality. After her parents left London in 34, Nora had spent one night apart from her family and was thrown headlong into loneliness and fear, writes Eagle. The, warm, the trauma that this naive and reserved young woman experienced through exposure to the sexual advances of a man in the street and the sexual behaviour of one of her neighbours was only relieved when an Australian friend, Evie, arrived in London. The London breakfast shows how Evie's presence settled Nora, allowing her to achieve the serenity and absorption in her art that had been disrupted by loneliness and fear. Eagle relates that Nora described Evie as her alter ego and that she was the model for some incandescent images, portraits and interiors like London Breakfast and Interior. But Nora was not only dealing with disapproval from her parents. She was receiving continual adverse criticism from her male teachers and from her father's friends that he had sent her for advice. It would all finally take its toll on her buoyant and optimistic approach to hard work. Her teacher at the Central School of Art, Bernard Meninsky, did not make life easy. And Nora wrote, his work with a widely acknowledged basis in, in sound draftsmanship was unappealing to me with its impressionistic and unbroken strong lines. Meninsky suggests that I would improve if I were to draw in his mode. He was fundamentally forcing a modernist technique on Nora, who was still finding where she lay between the two worlds. And Nora said, he said that I had a good idea of drawing and proportion, but unfortunately I had been taught the wrong way. But it was likely with a few years of training, I might be able to see the way he does and do Meninsky drawings. Quite a conceit. It was not only teachers who challenged Nora. Like her father, Nora was passionate about nature and the transient beauty of flowers, and it would be a subject that would sustain her throughout her fluctuating career. She claimed her religion was growing things and sunshine, light and life. Her love of nature was the essence of her flower pieces and still, work, 
still life works, that she turned to in her darkest hours. But her path to these more intimate works, dominant in her oeuvre, was influenced by two men, recommended to Nora by her father while she studied in London. They would have a disastrous effect on her sense of worth and her artistic ability. The first stinging criticism came from the royal academician James Bateman. Nora wrote home to her parents in May 1935 that Bateman and his wife had joined Nora for dinner at her studio and he took the opportunity to review her work. She said, I got a gruelling criticism from Bateman. He doesn't like my work evidently and hasn't a good word to say for it. He thinks that it lacks tone, that my technique is mechanical and that I'm trying to get light and vibration in the wrong way. All of which is very disheartening. But then he's very biased against women painters. We nearly came to blows discussing women artists and their merits. In wishing to condemn someone's work, he said, oh, just like a woman's work. And that made me furious. And I stood up for them and defended them with all I had. Probably his criticism will do me a lot of good. At the moment, I feel sore about it and a little resentful. Despite her bravado, Bateman's thoughts and words on her work would strike another blow during a second visit by him to her studio. And she succumbed to Bateman's follow-up attack that alleged her work was mannered and superficial. And then there was Sir Charles Holmes, the director of London's National Gallery. He dealt her a blow in late 1936 when he reviewed Nora's work and delivered a very adverse criticism. Nora had studied at Central School since 1934. And while she suffered from Bateman's criticism, she had still managed to push on, realising that although she was not convinced about new approaches, the constraints of the conservative academy discipline also had drawbacks. But it was her meeting with Holmes that affected her most. And she wrote to her father, I took my work to Charles Holmes. He had, uh, my, uh, you had made contact and made an arrangement. He advised me as to how I was going. He asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, figures and landscape. He just laughed at me, and it crushed me, absolutely. It was a very untimely criticism. And, well, I lost my confidence entirely, and I went on painting, but my big ideas, you know, Australian landscape and figures, it was very sad and devastating, devastating. In fact, she made those comments to the documentary maker, Eugene Schlusser. It was not in a letter to her father. She was sitting on the veranda at the chalet at her home, and she delivers these lines, her head shakes slowly from side to side as she relives the blows delivered by the man who would be dead not long after their meeting. How was Nora, an impressionable young woman, to react to the contempt of the man who was known as a great watercolourist, oil painter, author and critic, a man she'd been sent to for advice by the father she loved and respected and looked to for guidance. For her 21st birthday in 1932, her father had given her an inscribed copy of C.J. Holmes's Old Masters and Modern Art. And here she was, at his mercy. She was aware that there were many ways to paint, to express one's creativity and vision of life and nature, but the males around her in London were a formidable force. When she returned from London, Nora had been away for over three years and was clear that it was time to separate from her father. There was not enough room for two artists at the Cedars. During her time in London, she'd been greatly influenced by artist Lucien Pizarro and his daughter, Oravida. The Pizarro suggested dramatic changes to Nora's palette, higher keyed, away from the black, brown and ochre base favoured by her father. And the works that stand out as representative of this departure from her father's influence were both painted in the months after her return to the Cedars in early 1938. There's her self-portrait in 1938 and corn cobs. Both very important works. And Lou Klepak says, these works signal the emergence of an original painter. But fine as they are, her father found them to be too light a key. She loved and admired him, but she knew that she belonged to another world. And if she was to make a life for herself in Australia, she must move. Nora moved to Sydney 
<clears throat> and it was late in 1938 that she completed her two entries for the Archibald. Her win was announced in January 1939, just days after her 28th birthday. It was a contentious win with the same artist who later attacked Dobell for his 1943 Archibald win, challenging the Joshua Smith portrait, was it caricature or was it portraiture? They attacked Nora, one going so far as to tell her to return the money. The other detractor, fellow entrant Max Meldrum, who would go on the following year to win the prize, had quite a lot to say. And in the press the next day after the prize had been announced, Meldrum was quoted, if I were a woman, I would certainly prefer raising a healthy family to a career in art. Men and women are differently constituted. Women are more closely attached to the physical things of life. They are not to blame. They cannot help it. And to expect them to do some things equally as well as men is sheer lunacy. I'd like him to try and say that today. The Australian Women's Weekly managed to reduce her win to a cookery column with the headline, Girl Painter Who Won Art Prize Is Also a Good Cook. <laughs> they asked her for her recipes and reproduced duck with olive sauce and Hungarian goulash with a lovely photo accompanying the story of Nora in her kitchen. Nora's commission as an official war artist began in 1943 and she produced over 250 works including 62 paintings, 102 drawings and along with her sketches. The collection shows some of her strongest portrait work and despite the criticisms from CJ Holmes, she did produce figures in the landscape and they are extraordinary and I discuss them at length in my book. She recorded many poignant moments that encapsulate the great value of war artists while at the same time recognising service to country. At the end of the war, after serving in Australia and Papua New Guinea, Nora flew up and down the coastline of northern Queensland as she accompanied the nurses known as the Flying Angels who flew in and out of the Pacific combat zones delivering supplies and evacuating the wounded to base hospitals in Australia. She participated in medical evacuations from Ley and Moritai back to Townsville and on two occasions she drew the portraits of two of the Flying Sisters whose lives were lost. Sister Beryl Chandler had kept a diary and it's in the War Memorial and she records the moment when Nora was in the mess and it was just Beryl and another nurse, Marie Craig. Nora had wanted to paint Beryl but Beryl was shy and Marie Craig piped up you may as well paint me, Nora, because I'm not going to get out of here alive. And they may as well know what Marie Craig looked like. And Beryl Chandler thought that that was a shocking thing to say and said, you don't have to do this. This is a volunteer flight. No, it's all right, Chan. The writing's on the wall. I'm just not going to make it. And Nora did that portrait. And not long after, her plane crashed into the side of a mountain and it was found 25 years in the Carstens Ranges. The pictures delivered by Nora Hyson as official war artists recording their activities have been instrumental in remembering them, Verdun Shea, Marie Craig and many others. Remembers them and their sacrifice and underscores the valuable role of the war artist in preserving these memories. In the course of writing this biography, I often asked myself why this extraordinary artist was not better known. And I came to the conclusion that Nora Hyson was a woman interrupted. She was interrupted by winning the most prestigious art prize in the country and the expectations that were associated with a win of that kind. By her country's declaration of war that re redirected her work out of the public eye, by love and the associated heartache of falling for a married man in the 1940s. She submitted to the expectations placed on a woman as a homemaker in the 1950s and was devastated by the abandonment by a husband she had waited 10 years to marry for a younger woman in a workplace romance. The final assault was her grief over the death of her unofficially adopted son Stephen from an AIDS-related disease. But through all of this, Nora was sustained by her art and hers was a satisfying life expressed through her creativity and her love for nature. She was courageous, 
she was happy as long as she could paint. Thank you. And Louise. To continue the discussion about Nora Heisen further, please join me in welcoming the National Library's Treasures Curator, Nat Williams, to the stage with Anne-Louise Willoughby. Thank you, Susanna. Um, it's nice to be sitting here with you. We first met in the Special Collections Reading Room here at the library. You did. And Anne-Louise was... Um, trying to decipher something in some papers and I hadn't met her and she said, what do you think this says? And I, I said, oh, I think it therefore maybe. And she said, oh, that's what it is. And, and I said, whose papers are you looking at? And she said, Nora Hyacin. And I said, oh, wow, I, I met Nora. I was very lucky to meet her. And that struck up this conversation and that led to uh, some information that I could impart. And I was very lucky to meet Nora and to be involved in presenting the exhibition here in 2000, 2001 with Lou Kleepak. And Nora was an extraordinary woman who um, it's very difficult to encapsulate in, in one volume in a way. And I think yes. you've done a beautiful job oh, of bringing her life to and putting it on record. Because, you know, as you said, a lot of, because she was a woman artist, uh, because of the time in which she lived and the circumstances, she wasn't recognised as widely as she should. So I think it's, it's incredible that upstairs there we've got all this incredible um, archive of material. And I should say that most of the images that you're seeing on the screen here are from our collection. Obviously, some are credited as being from the Art Gallery of South Australia or wherever else, but a lot of them are here now. So we've really built up a density of Heisen family material, pictures material, manuscripts material, and we'll add the book and your papers maybe in due course. Oh, so who thank knows? You. Um, <laughs> so to um, kick off, I suppose it could be said that to be born into an artistic family is both a privilege and possibly also a detractor. To what extent do you think Nora was overshadowed by the reputation of her much far, uh, more famous father, Hans? I, I think uh, she definitely lived in her father's shadow. I think Nora believed she did too, which is a shame because today a lot of the historians and, and uh, curators and art experts suggests that perhaps she was even better than her father. She was an extraordinary draftsman. Mm. Uh, but she did live in his shadow. But she did that quite deferentially. She had enormous respect and love for her father yeah. and considered him to be all things artistic that she aspired to be. Um, and right up to the end of her life, she was still asking the question, am I known in my own right? Or is it because I'm Hans Heisen's daughter? And the press of the day didn't help with that either. Because whenever she did do something wonderful, it was always daughter of Hans Heisen, daughter of famous artist. Yeah. Um, she was, they didn't let her stand in her own space. But that said, Nora was not a competitive person. She didn't no. seek the limelight and in fact, I referred to her winning the Archibald Prize, and you said this to me in the interview all those years ago, that she didn't self-promote. And that interruption that I referred to about the Archibald was that she didn't build on that. Anybody who won, if you, uh, Margaret Preston or Ollie, they would have jumped on the press bandwagon and really cemented their careers on the back of that win. But she just didn't, she didn't do that. No. And, uh, and I think for any artist, and perhaps even particularly a woman artist, I don't know, that there is that incredible tension between having to be a show pony and do the media and promote yourself, uh, whereas she really just loved making art. She loved nature. She loved her cats. She loved her dog later in life. Mm. For a while she had a husband she loved. Unfortunately, that didn't last long enough. Um, I want to touch on the role of Sally Hyson um, because it's complex both in, mm. in Nora's development as an artist but also as an adult. Mm. And um, so how would you sum up her... I think you do a very good job of summing it up in the book, but how would you sum up her relationship with her mother? Because it's interesting, when she writes to her father and mother, she refers to fa Hans as daddy in the letters that we have here and, and 
her mother as mother. So you know there's a kind of mm. sort of a demarcation there. Well, Nora said that her mother never wanted to have children. She had them for daddy. <laughs> she had eight of them. Yep. Um, but that kind of frames the situation. Sally Hyson was an incredible woman. There's no getting away from that. She loved Hans Hyson very much. She was his greatest uh, promoter and advocate, yep. and she ran the enterprise of the Cedars. Um, her four, five daughters were central to the running of that endeavour. Uh, they worked very hard. They had lo a lot of responsibility. Sally was not moving with the times, though. She was very class conscious, whereas Hans wasn't. Mm. Hans had come from very uh, lowly situation, even though his father, when he came from Hamburg originally, did have money and did was here to seek his fortune. He'd come down to running uh, not a very successful piggery at one stage in mm. a very depleted environment. But to get back to your question, the relationship with Sally was fraught. I think there was, um, Nora even suggests herself that there was regret on Sally's part because Sally was a very good artist and she gave it up immediately when she married. She never painted after she married and of course once she started to have children there was no going back and, and Nora suspected that there was some regret and possibly a, a subconscious, unconscious jealousy. Mm. Mm. And she was very close to Hans. Nora was very close. And I don't think the two artists working together sat very comfortably for Sally. No, I think you get the feeling that there was only room for one other artist in the family, yeah. and that was luckily for Nora, was her, even though others mm. might have had the capacity to do it, that it wasn't tolerated. If it had been one of the sons, it might have been a bit different. That's right. Mm. Um, they wouldn't have been called to make the scones when the visitors arrived mid-oil painting. <laughs> no. Then no. Nora didn't like that. She said, I, I don't think they would have been called into kitchen duty halfway through a painting, but I was. Because It's interesting because she talks in her oral history here, um, which we've got three, and I encourage you, you can listen to them all online. One, she talks about her father a lot. One, she talks about her early life, and, the, and then the later one with Heather Ruston, which is 1994. So spent 30 years of recordings, but she's talking about lying on their tummies with their dad in the studio. So they were tolerated as little kids sort of doing drawings and paintings, but then as they got older they were sort of pushed out of the way Very and that was it. Mm. I, I want to raise the issue as a biographer with you of the, the notion of sort of an uncomfortable truth. Yes. Um, what do you think the role of the biographer is in revealing difficult past history? Uh, especially within such a well-known family as the Hysons? A biographer has an enormous responsibility. You have a responsibility to your subject. You also have a responsibility to your reader and to the notion of biography. And you do find uncomfortable truths. And I did find uncomfortable truths for the Hysons. And you have a loyalty to your subject. You want to protect your subject. And at the end of the day, though, you have to address them. So I had some measuring sticks as to what I would include, how I would include it. But there were certain events that were unavoidable that needed to be dealt with because they informed the decisions that Nora made as she moved on with her life and it's the way she wanted to live, which gets back to, to Josephine. The story which probably people don't know about until they read your book, perhaps, mm. is um, that of Josephine, the eldest um, sister, who was a really, sounds like a fun and interesting person. Extraordinary. Lo loved mm. horses. And, mm. um, do you want to bring her into the story? Because that's quite a critical moment, I yes. think, in their relationship with the mother. Yes, and um, I'd, I'd, I lost sleep for a very long time trying to decide how to... to to talk about this and I would like you all to know that I did discuss it with the trustees and with Peter Hyson who's the family representative before I went ahead. I knew I would have to go ahead but I wanted them to know that I was going to discuss this because it really doesn't uh, paint Sally Hyson in a very good light. So Josephine was the eldest daughter. 
She was an extraordinary horsewoman. She could have been the first woman to race at Flemington, except she wasn't allowed to. So she trained all these horses. Her mother was very happy for her to associate with the horse owners, but not with the racing fraternity. And yet she had this very strong friendship with Max Williams, who was a trainer at Oakbank, just not far from where she lived in Handolf. As the years went by, Sally tried very hard to separate this relationship. Um, Josephine insisted they were friends, but only friends. But of course, there came the day where it was clearly evident that they were not just friends. She was unmarried and pregnant. Uh, she was in the dead of night, married in a church ceremony with just her two parents there and whisked away on a train to rural Victoria to potentially return to Adelaide at a later date with a child of indeterminate age. And I asked Peter Heisen about this and he said, a scandal would have destroyed the Heisen situation mm -hmm. and Sally was very clear that that couldn't happen. And she would do anything to protect Hans. Josephine died. Um, she was dying from malnutrition and pneumonia in uh, poverty. Um, there had been no money even for a wedding ring. She had gone from beautiful uh, environment to a stable of men drinking and smoking with not enough money for fresh food. Um, it was when Harson and Sally were in Sydney for the opening of the 1938 David Jones exhibition. They raced to rural, uh, to Mentone, and they, the, the word was that they were operating to take the child, but they wouldn't be able to save the mother. And the child did survive. And this was a pivotal moment for me. I started to feel a bit emotional. Mm. <coughs> I was in the special reading collection here. And I'd been here numerous times. And I discovered a new cache of letters on the catalogue that had not been there. And I thought, what is this? And this is the incredible power of having a collection like you have mm. here, that yep. we have in this country. It was the letters of Josephine Hyson to her confidant, a woman who lived in uh, marginal farming territory north of Adelaide, and this was the whole story. And I sat there. I had no idea that this had happened. Well, nobody really did. And these letters were only just revealed and just released. And it's a credit to the Hyson family that they were delivered to the, to the public archive. Mm. It's not something they're hiding. In fact, Peter Heisen said this must never be able to happen ever again. And a lot of his work as a GP, he worked with, um, at Sister Kate's uh, with the unwedded mothers and it was, I think, perhaps subconscious act of atonement. I don't know. Mm. But um, so I found these letters and, and being a journalist and you get an idea of something that this is, this is powerful and critical. And I was um, able to go to Hawaii because I thought, where is this child? Where is the surviving child? She was 78 years old and um, I met her in Hawaii and she was wonderful and, uh, and it's all there in the book. <laughs> I think you get the picture that the book, um, the, the, you know, you can Google Nora Heisen and you'll read a lot of the facts about the Archibald and about being the war artist and uh, about, you know, her career and that she painted, you know, people say, oh, yeah, she was a flower painter or she painted self-portraits. But when you read the book, you get that sort of uh, the remarkable texture of her life in terms of the day-to-day -day narrative of what she was doing as best can be sort of determined. And, you know, she had that as Hans did, an ascendant career that took off both of them very quickly, but, you know, se separated by, you know, 25 years. Both took off, his continued to go, hers then plateaued and, and sort of dipped. And it really wasn't until the 80s when she was resurrected by um, exhibitions and, and people. So I think we're very lucky to have that. Um, I guess... 
I want to ask a question. Um, what you know, having related that story about Josephine, which is a very affecting one, what effect do you think that had on Nora? I think um, Nora wrote to her parents after um, Josephine's death, which happened when she was preparing her paintings for the Archibald. So it was a, a, a very difficult time. Mm. It was October 1938 when Josephine died. Um, Nora was having to submit in about six weeks' time um, by December. And um, she wrote to her parents and she said, I have no words. But she did share with um, Everton Stokes and Meredith Stokes that she felt that this should never have happened. And one of the things that she took from that was that she understood that judging people and the social conventions of the day that could create that situation needed to have... She needed to find some other way of thinking about them and how can that be? And I think it was that point that she decided that live and let live was going to be her motto. I think, Nora, from what I can understand, and perhaps you can tell me because you knew her, she never judged. She might be diametrically opposed to your opinion, but she let you have it. She would have hers, she would have, you would have yours, and, well, let's now have a, have a whiskey and a ciggy, <laughs> you know, so... And yet yeah. another cigarette. Mm. Um, she was a prodigious smoker, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, yeah, I... You know, I think, you know, she, she was on the record as saying, she was interviewed by somebody and she said, I'm not a feminist, you know, to, as though to kind of get it out there, I'm not going to be labelled a feminist. And yet, everything she did, uh, in a way, was about being independent and creating sort of these remarkable works of art and being, you know, what we would think of as a feminist, really, don't you think? I mean, oh. you know, she didn't like the label, I think that was the issue. And, yeah, you know. I think the, the, the label of feminist um, in the 70s, perhaps, um, Angela Hessen, the curator, curator at the NGV exhibition uh, that's on at the moment, said perhaps she was confusing, she didn't want to be confused with misandry because Nora loved, loved men. Yeah. And she, um, she uh, Nora just wanted to be known as an artist. She didn't like being called female painter, girl painter. She wanted to be an artist and she wanted her work to be judged on the same platform as any other artist. She yeah. couldn't see why that distinction had to be made. And what was interesting, even at her time when she was in London, she didn't see any gender bias. She just saw these men that her father recommended her to for advice and for guidance. Mm. And so she thought, well, they know a lot. Perhaps I just have to put my head down and keep going. And it was a shame that she didn't see mm. what was happening. I often I said to people, wouldn't it be interesting if these artists who were guiding her there'd been a blind viewing, like a blind tasting mm. of wine, and they didn't know who had done it. You only have to look at her phenomenally strong war pictures yes. to see the strength of the women and the way she's able to deliver that strength of character. And as Lola Wilkins said to me, you would not even think for a second necessarily that that had been painted by a woman. Begs the question. We'll probably start to wrap up and take questions from you if you'd like to answer them. But there is another question that I would like to ask, which was, I suppose, the life of a... The role of a biographer is a complex one and you've got to know, you know, to put, put it out there, to do it as objectively as possible. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Nora on a number of occasions and she was a real delight and um, I wish I'd got to know her better, I suppose. But... Um, if, if you could meet Nora today, oh. what would be the one question that you could ask her that you would love to, to get feedback from her about all? Well, this might sound very strange, but I'd, we dream together, Nora and I. <laughs> <laughs> you spend five years with somebody, uh, getting to know them intimately. But the question I would most like to ask Nora is... How did she sustain such a patient way of approaching her compulsion mm. and her drive? Um, but if I could just read this mm. little bit um, at, at the end of my book that just 
really speaks to that. Because someone asked me, what did I learn from Nora? And I'm hoping that I learnt something about what having patience means. And Craig Duberry, who looked after Nora in the last 10 years of her life, said that Nora remained true to knowing that there would be a time when she would be able to concentrate back onto the things that gave her the most joy. She had enormous patience. When you befriended her, part of the process was her showing you about the act of being patient with things. It's very easy when you are young to be impatient. You just don't know. But to do something well, you need to devote time and not be conscious of that time that you are using to make that possible. I think that that is something that anybody that was close to her learnt. She would impart the importance of it, the patience that you need to do something of real worth. Well put. <laughs> um, we might hand over to you if anybody would like to ask questions. There are two microphones that are roving up and down the, the aisle there. If you want to ask a question, please put up your hand and we'll attempt to answer them. There's, there's one here with this lady. There's one at the front here. This lady in the Hang on, we've got one here and we'll take you in a minute. No, no, it's all right because we're recording it. it yes. Me first? Yes, yes. Um, thank you, that was so moving. What a beautiful way to describe her. She really is an amazing artist. Thank I'm just you. wondering, did she work on um, bodies of work for exhibition or was it more sort of a work in progress as she created her, her pieces? Great observation to think about that because up until... 38, she had been working on exhibitions yeah. and she, and when she was in Sydney after 38, she, she never had a solo exhibition after that time. And Lou Klepak said to her, well, I can't believe you haven't had an exhibition in Sydney. And she said, well, nobody asked me. Uh, right. So... <laughs> The problem was, again, this idea that she never pushed herself forward. So, but she painted continuously her whole life and she lived on commissions, basically, word of mouth. And up until uh, the friends... So the friends of her father's, like James McGregor and Sydney U. Smith, they acted as proxy agents, mm. if you like. She never even had an agent, which would have been a good idea. But they were her proxy agents. And you also see her commissions start to drop off. Sorry for the pun, but as they drop off, mm. um, they, they, as they decline, their health declines, they're less active and they finally pass away, you see this uh, diminishment of her, of, her, of, of her commissions. So, no, she wasn't working on bodies of work. And, and, and it, it points to the... The need for, you know, at any time, somebody to have a dealer or a, an advocate, even an if it's not an agent and a dealer, mm. a formal one, mm. a, an advocate who would push you. And, and thankfully for her, she was lucky that Lou managed to come along yes. and they managed through a set of circumstances and to meet. And that was when she was resurrected completely uh, and came, was wonderful. And he, mm. he was a really good friend to her and he got her into the pens and pencils group. And there was a pens and pencils group that used to meet up at the S.H. Uh, Irvine Gallery. I think it was every other Thursday or something like that. And a whole lot of these artists, some of whom you've seen in the photos there, would go and they'd do drawing and they'd talk. And it was just a social group that I allowed expression. I think at one stage expression. there were four Archibald winners in that yeah, group. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So um, now, this lady here. Sort of going to be my question was what actually happened to her painting from mm. 1938 onwards. And it seems like she did continue to paint. Um, so was she within an art world? Like, did she have a relationship with the art world, um, even through her father? Or did she bring herself out of it? Like, did she sort of decide she wasn't part of that world? Because it just seems so extraordinary that somebody who won the Archibald suddenly sort of disappeared and wasn't even really 
connected with the artists of the time, you know, the people that were sort of painting, you know, um, I know certainly in Victoria um, and, you know, would, you would think would bring Nora along with them. Um, but well, there was a pivotal moment where the, what happened was when the um, contemporary artists in the late 30s and early 40s, when the contemporary movement started, mm. that was, so Nora was away painting for the war memorial. And unlike the Americans and British war artists, whose work were used as uh, propaganda and as morale boosters, the Australian artist's work was held over until after the war. So she was out of view completely. Her work wasn't, wasn't being seen. So there's a, from, from 43 to 46, 47, she's completely out of view. So we're nearly 10 years after the Archibald, really, that you, she's getting back into her own work. But at that time, you had um, John and Sunday Reed, you had the Nolans, the, uh, the whole Angry Penguin group were doing their thing. And a lot of the realist artists, like Nora, were relegated to old-fashioned, boring, out-of-date, not relevant. And she wasn't going to fight them. I mean, mm. there was an exhibition that Lloyd Rees was in, and there was the headline, they even referred to these works as old-fashioned mm. and out-of-date and not particularly relevant, which when we look at it now, uh, we, it's hard to believe. But that's what she was up against. She was up against Robert Hughes. Yeah. Um, uh, thinking just <laughs> done and dusted, go, no, that's not what Australian art is all I, about. Th I, mm. I mean, I think there was a sort of perfect storm, if mm. you forgive the pun, of, of events that, you know, she was a woman. Mm. She was born in this famous family which sort of worked against her. She did art that was seen to be not in vogue, yes. was not modernist, even though we now appreciate aspects of it that, mm. are, that are. Uh, and she w became a housewife. So basically she has this life where mm. she meets Robert Black, who's married, who's the doctor. You've seen pictures of him, a very handsome, charismatic chap. She totally obsessed with, with his him. work mm. and they get married mm. and she ends... So for, for, for a decade they can't do anything. No. And then they get married and for 20 years she's his wife looking after mm. him his needs mm. and you know while he travels and eventually he travels so much and he runs off with straight out the door straight out the door <laughs> and and that's probably in a way when she goes back into mm. making art more that's right she was free again talking about her reputation um they, the Heisens were a proud German family. I mean, they were proud of their German background. Yes. And there was anti-German sentiment in Australia in the 40s and the 50s. Yes. And I wonder if that accounts for something of, you know, about her standing and also her protective attitude towards her father, because she would have been aware of that. I mean, yes. it, was, it was there in that time period. Yes. And although it's not spoken about, you know, it was perhaps a factor in, you know, in her standing and even, you know, because his reputation went down somewhat too in the 50s and the 60s and it wasn't a good time to be German in an English-speaking country. I, I think you do have a, a very good point and, and in, particularly after World War I, uh, Heisen had a terrible time during uh, that period. Uh, his loyalty to Australia was questioned. Um, in fact, driving into the light, which had been earmarked by the Melbourne Art Gallery, uh, was rejected on the grounds of his um, unwillingness to sign some sort of oath of allegiance. And he said, if they cannot see my loyalty to this country in my art, nothing I say or no piece of paper I sign is going to add to that testament. And then, to your point, it's possible that the, 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 there were two Heisen sons who are now in the Air Force and Nora and her uh, real commitment to recording the work of, of the people that she was following as a war artist. I don't know if 
if it was the case, but I suspect you'd be pretty comfortable in thinking there was some of that. But on a practical level, she was very much out of view, and on an art historical level, it was the modernists who were just kicking people to the curb. Mm. And Sorry. You made that point about mm. Robert Hughes. When Robert Hughes sort of completely dismisses Hans Heisen as being a traditionalist and boring and have no ideas, well, if you're in his wake, you know, in, in if she was in his wake as mm. an artist and associated oh. with it, then it's not good for news for you either that you can't be seen as anything because you're branded with this Heisen name. So well, it was sort of a bit of a curse. Yes, Luke Klepak suggests that if she had chosen to... Uh, exhibit corn cobs with mm. the Contemporary Art Society and not with the failed uh, academy that mm. had just been established by Menzies yeah. and Heisen and um, Lionel. Menzies. Uh, it, it would have been uh, a completely different situation because she would have aligned herself with the modernists. She just kind of, she didn't even agree with the Royal Academy idea. She said, well, that's a bit retrograde, and, but her father signed her up for it without even asking her. And she kind of, as you say, got dragged along in his wake. And I think that that was a seminal moment when she didn't flip the coin and exhibit to somewhere else. It looks like we've got one more question here. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Madame Sherman, who was oh. the subject of the um, prize-winning painting, and how Nora came to have that commission? Yes, I can. Um, Madame Elink Sherman was the sitter for the successful Archibald painting, and she was introduced to her by a family, I think a, a cousin or a um, family friend mm. who hosted a cocktail party, a sherry party, um, and Schumann was the wife of the Netherlands consul. She was a socialite, she was 25 years old, very beautiful, and Nora said that, and this is how Nora got a lot of her commissions. There would be a sherry party, um, Sidney Ewer Smith or James McGregor or Lionel Lindsay would introduce her to somebody with the wherewithal to pay for a, a portrait and she would proceed. And Schumann um, was a very difficult sitter. It was a very, very difficult portrait. Nora was, just didn't know where to put herself. Sherman had young children. She would not show up for sittings. She'd have to run off. And at one point, Nora said that she had reduced um, Madame Sherman to tears. And one of the critics suggests, or Jane Hilton, I think, suggests that um, that fragility and that beauty was actually as a result, this poor woman was scared stiff. <laughs> <laughs> sitting in front of Nora, not wanting to move, and she had tears rolling down her face. But um, Nora says that she really was not a suitable choice for the Archibald. She didn't meet the criteria for a, of a famous head. She wasn't a great military person or lawyer or scientist. Mm. And here was this gorgeous Chinese silk embroidered gown, and Nora said, I just used her as a coat hanger. <laughs> I thought my portrait of John Mullins might win, but not that one. But here she was with 450 pounds in her pocket, and that was quite a sum in that, in that time. We're going to have to wrap it up. I'll just say in conclusion, thank you for your book. Thank you. I think Nora would be very pleased that she's receiving the credit that she so richly deserves. And I, I think the thing that was really remarkable about her was the fact that she'd lived a long life uh, and wasn't bitter about Not at all. anything, really. She mm. was a very accepting and warm and rem remarkable woman. And, you know, she had all these things happen in her life that could have gone better, and yet her art career being one of them, uh, and yet she managed to, you know, be kind of retiring but funny and, you know, a dynamo really in many ways. And, you know, as long as she had a whiskey and a cigarettes and the garden, which she loved, and the, the pets, the cats and Bosie the dog, 
and a few friends to come and visit her. She was happy, and I think there's a you know there's a, a lesson in that for all of us really as we get older, thinking, well, you know, what do you need in life? And I think Whiskey. that the not the cigarettes. I won't advocate the cigarettes. I think that also it's 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 fitting to acknowledge what the NLA did for her in 2000 and 2001, and you as the curator of that exhibition. It was her moment where she declared, "I know I'm." accepted in my own right as an artist. I know that now. And she was a very happy woman, Nat. Well, I wasn't the curator. Lou was oh, the curator, but Lou I helped organise it. But you, I do yes. remember I walked, I met her at the car. She pulled up out the front. She'd driven down from Sydney, walked up the steps and saw this huge banner of self-portrait of her. And she was just about gobsmacked. I think she was going to fall over and turn around and run away. <laughs> and I think that was the moment when the, yes. it dawned on it. Oh, my God, this is all yeah, real. Yeah, it was real. Anyway, thank you very much. I'll hand you back to Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you Anne-Louise and Nat, for an absolutely absorbing and entertaining discussion. Unfortunately, we're now at the end of our conversation, um, but I do hope you can join us for refreshments upstairs in the foyer. Copies of Nora Heisen, a portrait, are available at the library's bookshop this evening with a 10% discount, and Anne-Louise has kindly agreed to sign copies of her books. I also invite you to visit the library's treasures gallery, which will remain open also until 8pm this evening. Thank you to all of you for being here this evening, and please join me in thanking Anne-Louise Willoughby and Nat Williams. <laughs>